0: If you're visiting today, our pastor, who normally stands in this place at this time, is in Ecuador as well, so I wish him. And pray for him the best, that God would bless all that they're doing there. We're in Matthew chapter 23. And as you're turning there, I remind you that we've been on a journey through the book of Matthew for some months now. Uh, We're getting closer to the end. Some think Matthew takes the whole New Testament. It really doesn't. It just takes us a while when we're walking through it like this. You may have heard this story A desperate man at the end of his rope checks into a hotel. He goes upstairs, goes into his room, drops his luggage on the floor, lays on the bed, just staring at the ceiling, not sure what to do. After a few minutes, he sits back up. He's restless, and he looks over at the end table beside his bed, the nightstand, he opens the drawer, and he takes out a copy of the Bible placed there by Gideon's. He looks up. He says, "God, I will do whatever you want me to do. Just show me what your word has for me." So he closes his eyes and he opens the book and he puts his finger on the page and he opens it and he reads. "Jesus or excuse me, and Judas went out and hung himself." He closed the Bible. He's confused. He's not sure. He's saying, I'm going to give this one more chance. He closes his eyes. He opens the book. puts his finger on another verse, and he reads, Go thou and do likewise. That's not the best way for figuring out God's will for your life. And while as I say that, I also want to underline that in that book is everything you need. And there is something for all of us. And this morning, as we begin to look at chapter 23, there is something for all of us. On any given Sunday, the tendency is for all of us also is to think, well, you know, I see so-and-so in that verse, and I see so-and-so in that verse, and if they'd get their life right, they would see this and that and the other. And we sometimes miss how much is there for us first. And while you want to pray for so-and-so, you want to find what God has for you this morning. And it's not about what I'm going to say, but what God's words can say to us this morning. So I pray you'll find something for you. You'll remember a few weeks ago we did, we did uh, the end of Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus had encountered Pharisees. And scribes, those disciples of the Pharisees, Herodians and Sadducees and experts of the law. And these guys had all come to get Jesus. And they had their questions ready, trick questions, where if he answered one way, he could be in trouble. And if he answered another way, he could be in trouble. He could be seen as a heretic or he could be seen as someone treasonous to Rome, And so they thought they had him. And at every turn, you'll remember Jesus kind of turned it back on them. It didn't work. But it gave, them an op- it gave Jesus an opportunity to address their issues. And so the content of Matthew 23 is right after 22, meaning there's more to the story. This is also the place where Jesus concludes his earthly ministry. His pu- not his earthly ministry, excuse me, his public ministry. After this, he's talking to his disciples, but, up to, but at this point, he's still out in the open. He still has much to say, and he has some exchanging he wants to do with the scribes and the Pharisees. The message begins with a, a word to the crowd about the scribes and Pharisees, exposing them as false teachers. Now remember, these were highly regarded men in the culture. They were the guys with the answers. They were devout in all things of the law. They believed in what they were doing, and most folks around them believed in what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. They thought these guys spoke for God in a very powerful way. But don't miss the point that's about to come in this chapter. You and I can be absolutely convinced that we're doing God's work, We can be obeying what we understand to be God's word, accomplishing God's will. And all the time we can also be deceiving ourselves and on a path that takes us away from God. And in some cases, takes us right on in to hell. So let's look at chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. Notice that. Do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father For you have one Father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We're going to pause right there. Jesus says two things as he opens this section. He exposes hypocrisy, and he praises humility. He exposes hypocrisy, and he, expre- and he praises humility. You see, these religious men taught the law of God, but they did not live it. They came up with so many rules and so many regulations for living that it was literally squeezing the life out of God's people. You know, here a law, there a law, everywhere a law, law. Oh, Rabbi, I had a law, and he just kept pushing those laws on them. Over six hundred of those, you'd have a hard time standing up or sitting down without breaking a law. It seems. So he's—they talk the law, but they do not walk the law. And in verse three, he says they do not practice what they preach. He's saying they want to be seen. And he references in that passage he's really referencing a passage from the Old Testament in Exodus 13:9 the Bible says, "This observance will be for you a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips." In this verse back in verse three, he's referring to the practice of tying boxes to their heads and they would and, and on their wrists, and they would put Prayers in those boxes to remind people. Because I have a box on my head, I'm uh, I'm really a deeply devout guy. And if you can see, you probably would attract attention out on the street with that strapped to your forehead. Some and as you see there in the middle, particularly the man with the glasses. That's that's more a picture of today's devout folks. But that was the type of thing that they had strapped to their to their head. And they were, some of them were larger and some of them were smaller. And then they also had a prayer shawl. And the prayer shawl had fringe hanging down. And these prayer shawls, the fringe got longer and wider. And it was, Jesus is saying, to be seen by others. I got to thinking about that. And it, I think there's a modern day comparison that we can make here. When I was a college student. I'd ended the freshman year of my, of my time at East Texas Baptist, and the choir from the school went on a three-week three trip to Europe. Now, this was a pretty big deal for a Texas boy who'd hardly ever been out of the state his whole life, and I was fixing, I left for three weeks and went to Europe, and that was pretty amazing for me. One of our stops was in Rome, and we went to Vatican City. At that time, they had built an audience hall for the Pope, and so rather than come out for his weekly messages in St. Peter's Basilica, they had built this auditorium, and that's where he um, would present his messages. And you have to give it to these gentlemen. Uh, he would do a message in seven different languages, which was pretty impressive. But there we were in this audience hall, and when he entered, he, was ca- he came into the building carried on a chair or a throne, with extension poles and had eight or 10 men carrying him and he was in robes and a tall jeweled hat and a staff so this week when i was working on this message it, that all i was reminded of that and i couldn't help but wonder if perhaps this group had missed the point maybe they missed that verse in matthew where he was talking where jesus was talking about people wearing and looking and seeking to be seen. I'll leave that for you to think about. He also said they liked to be honored guests. They wanted the best seats reserved for them, and they wanted to be greeted as rabbi, father, or instructor. This is what they do. This is what they love. This is what they desire. Jesus came to turn our world upside down, however. In fact, Jesus had a way of taking our heads and screwing them on backwards, didn't he? Because he said things like, to be big, we must grow small. To move up, we must go down. If we want to get in, we must lie flat on the floor. He seemed to speak in reverse of so many things that you and I are challenged by. That we want to be bigger and better often. Or have more. And he was saying, we could have less. And be more. So Jesus moves from exposing hypocrisy to praising or exalting humility. Now, at its core, when you break the etymology down, break it down on the word rabbi, it means my great one, my great one. Jesus is saying there's really no need for lofty titles. We have one father who is in heaven and one instructor, and that is the Christ. Jesus is not speaking, however, against spiritual leadership among the people of God he's not saying we don't need leaders in different areas Jesus is speaking to those however who use their leadership to lord it over people to be superior to be recognized to be in charge rather than leading they just want to push people now, these scribes and Pharisees, they were calling themselves rabbis, teachers, spiritual fathers, and instructors. And Jesus is pointing out they were doing that to draw attention to them and to pull their attention away from the Christ. Now, today we have, we have uh, different roles in the church, but they're all on equal status. Everyone's voice matters. We're not to lord our position or our positions over each other. A good example of that is if you come to a business meeting, everybody gets an opportunity to speak. Everybody gets an opportunity to address an issue. None of us automatically decide it's this way or the highway. That's part of being who we are. And that's a good thing. We are not to lord our position or our positions over each other. So I have a couple of things for you to consider before we move on. Several questions. Do you really, and this is for you to consider about your own life and for me to consider about mine. Do you really get a charge in receiving honor over other people? Do you get enjoyment whenever you realize that you are in a better or higher position than someone else? In your mind, do you think that you're better than other people? And do you tend to measure your level of spirituality compared to other people? Because the measurement for spirituality in my life is how I compare to Christ. The spirituality measurement for you, whoever you are this morning, whether you've been in this journey for years and years and years, or you just started recently, or somewhere in between, the measurement is against the standard that God has provided. Not how spiritual another brother or sister is. But here's what happens. Pride will drive us. It'll drive us to compare. It'll drive us to measure ourselves against our relatives, against our neighbors, against our coworkers, against our classmates. But it does us no good to do that, does it? Because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. We're all equal before God through Christ. And he alone is the one who's superior. He alone. And ver- now I remind you again what verse 12 said. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So let's continue on with verse 13, 14, and 15. Woe to you. And this section is called the, the seven woes. Um, by the way, and you'll see why. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, if you're a scribe or a Pharisee, you're probably feeling uncomfortable right now. I would feel uncomfortable. So Jesus singles out the two most influential groups. The scribes, those were the younger uh, disciples of the Pharisees. And then they were also the expert, quote, the expert Bible teachers. The Pharisees were the super spiritual Bible keepers. They were the ones that watched over the law. And throughout this passage, they are the you and the your that Jesus is referring to when he's speaking these words. And in these seven woes, I've broken we find four warnings. The first warning is zeal without knowledge. Be careful of zeal without knowledge. In Romans ten, two, and three, Paul writes to those Jews like himself who had rejected Jesus originally. Remember, Paul was and was actively trying to arrest or have killed everybody that was following Jesus. And so Paul wants to write to those who were like him and he says in Romans 10:2, "For I can testify about them that they are jealous, excuse me, zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness." Paul says that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus. Paul said a lot in his writings. But here Jesus uses woe to you kind of like God himself is speaking back in the Old Testament, pronouncing judgment. He spoke with authority. He's painting a picture. So envision, if you would, a door. And this door is the door to the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees are standing at the door, but they don't go through the door. They won't enter through the door. They're just standing at the door. And when people come up and they're about to walk through the door, these doormen, these gatekeepers, they won't let them go through. They think they're doing a good thing because they're keeping them from this Jesus of Nazareth who they were so afraid of. And they become the doorkeepers, and they're holding the people back. And Jesus is saying, you can have all the zeal you want, but if you don't understand, if you don't have the knowledge, you're missing the point. Look at verse 16. Woe to you blind guides! You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar, that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by the heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. And we could camp here for about three days, but we won't. Here's the second warning. The second warning, majoring on the minors. Be careful that you're not majoring on the minors. Four times, Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees blind. And twice, he calls them blind guides. Now, while this is pretty serious, there's a bit of humor in that, isn't there? Imagine if you're, on, if you're, being, if you're trekking down into the Grand Canyon in Arizona with a guide, or you're going maybe up Pikes Peak in Colorado with a guide, and suddenly you find out that your guide is blind. Now, having been in situations where you want the guide to know what they're doing, this could be pretty tough. In fact, it'd probably make a pretty good Adam Sandler movie, I would think. Um, At least interesting, if nothing else, a blind guide, okay? Blind guides are a danger. Don't follow them, is what he's saying. Don't follow them. Their insistence on the world following their teachings and their interpretations from God kept the world at arm's length and became more important than drawing people to God. You'll remember, during this time, the Jews were doing more and more and more, it seemed, to just keep the rest of the world away from them, rather than being the blessing that God originally intended for them. He didn't set them apart to run the world away. He set them apart to be faithful to him, and then in turn they could be missionaries to the world. And instead, this has been turned to a separate way of life, so separate that all of us in here this morning would be considered evil because we're all Gentiles. We're all those other people. And they were pushing those other people away by how they were acting. Jesus was saying that their legalism was actually leading people away from God's truth. Even their own people were being led away because of the legalism. And the, and the verse he is referring to when he talks about justice and mercy and faithfulness is found in Micah 6.8. In Micah 6.8, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk, walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. We need to always remember that the forms of our worship is not nearly as important as justice and mercy and faithfulness. You remember, it's about loving our neighbor, it's about being fair and merciful to everyone. It's about loving God. It's about being faithful to him and his commandments. And we've been given much. And we want to take care of the resources we've been given. But they're not going to know that we are Christians by the color of the carpet. They're going to, be, they're going to know that we are Christians by what? Come on. They'll know we are Christians by our love. My goodness, are we, we're afraid to talk in church. They'll know we are Christians by our I like carpet. But they'll know we are Christians by our love. Verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Third warning in the woe section is against outward appearances. Outward appearances. This first impression of spotless dinnerware refers to the meticulous keeping of the ritual purity laws. Hundreds of those. The second image is of whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. These leaders, they looked good on the outside. But unfortunately, Jesus is saying they were rotten on the inside. For us, watch out for keeping up our outward outward appearances and neglecting our own inner holiness, our thirst for God, our desire to follow Him. Who we are on Sunday should also be who we are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Who we are on Sunday and out in public is who we should be at home as well. Because we're Christians 24-7. Not just today, but every day, all the time. Verse 29, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets, and you decorate the the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So he's referring to previous history. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah, whom you murdered, between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. So our fourth warning, inexcusable excuse of unbelief. The inexcusable excuse of unbelief. They had built monuments to the prophets that their forefathers had killed. And they did that after they had preached the truth of God, and they didn't want to hear it. So often they would, or more than once, they just got enough, and they would kill them. And the implication is that they would not have murdered them, perhaps. But Jesus is saying, just as people here murdered the prophets of the past, they're going to murder in the future. He's going to send prophets, he's going to send wise men and teachers, he's going to send instructors, people that would speak for him in the coming days. And the scribes and the Pharisees were going to crucify and flog and hunt them down as best they could to stop them from preaching the truth. And that's exactly what you see if you go on and read in the book of Acts. The church of the day, or the Pharisees and scribes and these people that said they believed in God, as they went forward, they became, it became their mission to track down those heretics that said they aligned themselves with what Jesus Christ had taught. So he knew exactly what was coming. And he kind of stuck his finger in their eye and told them that's the way it's going to be. And you know that. Now, before we shake our heads, though, and before I get too puffed up and think about how glad I am that I would never have done something like that, right? All of us are thinking, well, you know, we don't do that. That's not the way we treat people. We would never have done that. But the other side of that is I'm also reminded that we've all rebelled against God. We've all turned from him. We've all said no to his will for our lives or his word. At some point, we've all said no. We've all rejected. And this is the same God revealed in Jesus that has been rejected by all of us at some point in our living. No matter how sincere we are, how hard we try, what we do, don't we all really deserve the wrath of God? As, as hard as we, it is to hear, the truth is we are so far from the standard. But his love shone through and changed that for all of us. Finally, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a final certainty in this chapter. There's a final certainty for all of us in our living is that judgment will come. Judgment will come. They had become blind and down the road Jerusalem is absolutely destroyed. Justice and judgment is going to come to all of us. But while that's so, salvation is possible for all of us as well. The exaltation of Jesus is guaranteed. He will come back to rule and reign, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that He is Lord of all. Not Lord of just you and me, but Lord of everything. So, for all of us this morning, a few questions. Will you see him coming as a judge or your welcomed king? Are you ready to step into heaven if he returned today? When I was growing up, I don't know how many times I heard preachers at this point in the sermon start to talk about the fact that if you step out of here and a car runs over you or you have a wreck or someone shoots you, if you die at this moment and you've never accepted Christ... You don't get to go to heaven. So I ask you, are you ready to step into heaven if he returned today? If you've received him as Lord and Savior, how has he impacted your life lately? How long has it been since, you would ha- since you've been able to say, this is the great thing God's doing in my life right now? Or every time you're asked for a testimony, do you have to go back 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years to talk about something, and perhaps you've missed what just happened yesterday. Are you struggling with a load of stuff only Jesus can carry for you? Are you trying to figure it all out on your own? I know every time I do that, it's pretty miserable. Are you trying to do that on your own? Have you gotten so mature in your spiritual journey that it's gotten stale and boring for you? God's not listening to me because I still have this to deal with. Well, maybe he's got something for you to learn so that that can go away. I don't know. But we get, we get to a place where, man, this just seems like, uh, like it's not working for me. Or, Bill, God doesn't hear my prayers because he hasn't answered one lately. Have you ever heard that when you've talked to someone who's desperate for God to step in, and they think that he's quit listening to their needs. Are you just playing the Christian game? Are we just playing a game? If so, to any of those, today is the day of surrender. This moment is the time of surrender. If you've been avoiding interacting with God, talking with Him, grappling with sin or disappointment or desperation in your life, if you're not working on that, why aren't you? Why do we want to be miserable? Why do we keep trying to do everything ourselves when the God of the universe has provided an answer for us. What's God saying in this in this room in this moment? Let's pray. Father, this is a hard passage. This is right in our face. We think it was difficult for those religious people that thought they knew the answer. We think it was tough for them as they were being accused by Jesus. But, Father, this is difficult for us as well. Because we don't want to disappoint you. And I pray this morning that there's a desire for our lives to be more. That if there's staleness that's come in in our Christian life, That you would spark something fresh and new. That we would quit holding on to preconceived ideas about how much we've done for you. And just once again say how little we are in light of your truth. We are sorry, Father for the times we disappoint you. Father, I'm sorry when I think I'm more than I am. For all of us here this morning. This scripture is for each one of us. It's not just for the guy across the pew or on the other side of the building or a relative or a coworker or someone we know. First of all, we have to put this up as a mirror for our lives, each one of us. And while it could be difficult, what a great blessing it is to know that you love us unconditionally. No matter who we are and what we've done or where we've been or the mistakes we've made, you're willing to put all that aside. When we come seeking forgiveness from you. And when our hearts are desperately desiring you, you will answer. You promised that. You've shown us that. May we never take it for granted or think it's not there. Father, I ask you this morning just to speak in this place. As I stop talking and as your Holy Spirit can be heard in each of our hearts, would you use this time to melt the resistance, to soften our hearts, to tear down the walls, to break open in our lives, Nothing but sheer adoration of you. Speak in this place, Father, for we love you and we really want more for our living to serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing an invitation hymn and just encourage you to consider what God has said or is saying to you about from this passage. Wasn't a real happy set of scripture, was it? But it comes right in, right in our face. Pretty straightforward. We don't want to miss it. Please don't miss it. If you have something you need to pray about this morning, reach over to the person next to you and pray about that. Or if you would like to come down here to to the front, kneel, give yourself back afresh to him. Perhaps this morning you've been looking for a church home. This could be the place for you. Perhaps all of this is only mystery and puzzles because you've never accepted Christ in your heart and life. I'd love to give you an opportunity to do that this morning if you've never received him. Whatever your need is, whatever your desire is this morning, we're going to stand. We're going to sing several stanzas and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Would you stand? Make this the prayer of your living. Take my life, Father, and let it be consecrated to you.